Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of of me in my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." Well, as uh, many of you know, my parents have a business where they take care of dogs and cats when people go on vacation, and they've had that business for quite some time, ever since I was uh, born. So I've been able to work there, and I've kind of been able to see kind of the inner workings of the business. And uh, one of the biggest challenge that, challenges that they've had is finding employees who are willing and able to do the work. But it's not for a lack of applicants uh, for the job, uh, but there's sometimes some misconceptions about what their job would involve. For example, so a lot of people would come to the job and think, I love animals. I love puppies. I love working with animals. I think this is going to be an awesome job. I'm just going to be able to play with the animals. But then they start working there and they find out it's not just playing with animals. They start working there and they find out that a dog poops in their room and decides, I'm going to be artistic today. I'm going to paint it all over the wall. We've got to clean that up. Not a very fun part of the job. So many employees don't last a real long time because of kind of misconceptions about what the job involves. And I think that's kind of what happens with the disciples here in this passage. Last week we looked at how Jesus asks, asks his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And Peter, the spokesman for the group, says, you are the Christ. And it's this kind of watershed moment where the disciples express their faith in Jesus and we think that they finally get it. But though they believe He's the Messiah, they're going to be shocked about what that really means for them. Like I said a number of times, when people thought about the Messiah, they thought about a political ruler. They thought about one who was to come who would uphold the law, who would put Israel back to its place of prominence, who would defeat Israel's enemies once and for all. So what Jesus is about to say to his disciples is nothing short of scandalous. The Son of Man, he says, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after that three and after three days rise again. Now we read this two thousand plus years later And we know about the cross, we know about the resurrection, and so we know the end of the story, so it doesn't seem all that shocking to us, but for Jesus' hearers and Jesus' readers, it would have been nothing short of mind-blowing. So wait a minute, you are the Messiah, the Savior, you're supposed to save us, to provide for us, and now you're telling us that you're going to die. So Peter gets the bright idea that he's going to set Jesus straight. He's going to rebuke rebuke the Son of God. So he takes him aside, says, Jesus, you know, in case you weren't familiar with this concept of the Messiah, 
Messiah is not supposed to die. The Messiah is supposed to save us. And Jesus is aside with Peter, and he, it says in the text, he sees his disciples, and he probably wanted to make a statement there. And so he rebukes Peter, and he says, Get behind me, Satan. He says, For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's pretty harsh, right, to call Peter Satan. Now, we don't have any evidence to suggest that Peter actually was Satan or that he was possessed by Satan. So why does Jesus call him Satan? Probably because he was doing similar things that Satan does. Traditionally, we believe that Satan was one of God's most beautiful angels, and then he wanted to be like God, and so he fell uh, becoming, trying to become like God, exalting himself over God and God's ways. And Peter here is also exalting himself and exalting the wisdom of man over God's ways, over the wisdom of God. Since the Messiah should never die. Messiah should bring us victory. He should provide for us. But little did Peter know that Jesus had to die. Little did did Peter know that Jesus had come to the earth, in fact, to die for the disciples, for his people. And that without his death, all people would be lost forever. So then it continues, and then Jesus calls the crowds to himself. And he tells the crowds, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now this was even more scandalous than what he said before. Now we think of a cross, we think about a charm that we wore on our neck, maybe a plaque that we put on the wall, a beautiful picture. We think about the beauty of the cross, but at that day and age, the cross was not beautiful at all. It was detestable. It was disgusting. It was something that people didn't talk about in common speech. There was something that was reserved for the most hardened criminals, those who uh, rebelled against Rome, those who were from the lowest classes of society. And they would crucify people to make an example out of them. And so you might be walking along the road and you might see a person up on uh, the crucifix being crucified as they're gasping for air, maybe a vulture standing next to him waiting for him, him or her to die. It was meant to be a deterrent. And so it was something that you wanted to put out of your mind and something you didn't want to think about. But then Jesus comes and He says, if you want to follow Me, you have to take up your cross. It was scandalous. It was revolutionary. The disciples thought that they were following Jesus on the road to exaltation. They're Jesus' band of disciples. They had disagreements about who was going to be greater in the kingdom of heaven. Their mother, one of their mothers is... Can my son sit at your right hand? They thought that they were on this road of exaltation. They thought that they were Jesus' right-hand man, and when Jesus brought in His earthly kingdom, they were going to kind of rule with Him. But Jesus says He's going to die. Little do they know that some of them are also going to die for their faith. As Jesus came once and for all to deal with sin and death through dying. But the dying that Jesus does, it's not just a physical death, it's also a volitional death. Jesus' death was not a great accident of history. It wasn't this tragic thing that happened that caught God by surprise. See, Jesus was dead long before He went to the cross. He had died to His own will and exalted the will of the Father long before He went to the cross. He was crucified long before He was nailed to the cross. He surrendered to the Father long before He said on the cross, into your hands I commit My Spirit. Long before He suffered in the garden and said, 
My Father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, Your will be done. Jesus had died to His own will. He sought to do the will of the Father at all costs, even to the, to the cost of His life. He loved the Father so much that He was willing to subordinate His will to the will of the Father. And that really gets to the heart of this passage. Jesus is concerned first and foremost with the things of God. He's concerned first and foremost with the will of God. And He tells us in essence that the kingdom of God is not about bringing in the kingdom. It's not about the reestablishment of Israel or the gaining of material benefits. It's about pleasing the Father. Coming under the rulership of God. See, when you love someone deeply, you're willing to sacrifice for them. Your self-interest kind of takes a back seat. You're willing to make sacrifices to make them happy. And that's the kind of love and devotion that he's looking for from his disciples. And he warns them that the ones who try to save their lives will lose it. In other words, if your number one goal in life is self-protection and comfort, you'll lose your life because your God is comfort and self-interest. He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words before men, I'll be ashamed of him before the Father. In other words, if you're ashamed of me before men, if that's your number one priority to fit in, to make other people happy, then you'll be lost because your God is other people. Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I mean, imagine you have everything that you ever wanted in life. You have money, you have family, you have prestige, you have recognition. You have admiration of those around you, but then you die and spend forever apart from God in hell. It doesn't do you any good. You've lost everything. You've gained the whole world, but you've lost your soul. Now that doesn't mean Jesus isn't saying that we're to find pleasure in pain and suffering. That's, that's absolutely not what Jesus is saying here. But it means that we hold what we do have loosely. It means that we're willing to lay our lives down before the King. Before King Jesus. That He's the Lord and Director of our lives. So if we're going to follow Jesus, it says in this passage, we need to be willing to die. We need to be willing to take up our cross and follow Him. We need to be willing to give up our self-interests. But the truth is, we can't do that without the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do that without Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. I'd like to point out something that's pretty interesting, I found pretty interesting about this passage. Now Jesus is addressing His disciples. People who had followed Him for all this time. And these disciples are still unable to do the commands that He gives them. They're unable to do them. Jesus is arrested sometime after this and His disciples flee Peter says he'll, he'll never deny Jesus, but then he denies him three times. Saying, in essence, I never knew the man. It's exactly what Jesus is warning against in this passage. The disciples are the ones who save their lives, who seek their own interests, who are ashamed of Jesus before men. But praise the Lord for the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Praise the Lord that after the cross and resurrection and after the Holy Spirit is poured upon these believers, they're completely transformed. They're no longer af afraid, but boldly proclaiming the Gospel even as they're threatened with death. 
See, the gospel, and when I say the gospel, I'm talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus, gives us the power to do what Jesus commands us to do. See, in the gospel, we see one who sought not his own life, but laid down his life for his friends. In the gospel, we see one who was not ashamed of us. We see who, one who saw our wickedness and still loved us anyways. Imagine that you had all of your mistakes and someone took a video camera and could see all of your thoughts, all of your actions, everything that you've done wrong in your life. And we were to put that on the screen today for everyone to see. Imagine pretty much all of us would be ashamed. But Jesus sees every last one of those things. He sees everything we've ever done, everything that we ever will do, and He still loves us. He's still not ashamed of us. And in 1 Peter 2, chapter 9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. In other words, God has chosen that through the church the excellencies of God would be shown. The greatness of God would be shown through His church. In other words, He is so proud of us and the work that He's doing in us that He's using us to reach the world. Even though we're sinners, even though we're broken, even though we don't deserve it, He chooses to use us and to show His glory through us. If we're going to do what Jesus calls us to do in this passage, we have to have that background. We can't do it on our own. The natural man, the natural woman can't do that. Can't lay down their own interests. You have to have that background in the Gospel and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. If we're going to deny ourselves, we need to have the assurance that Jesus loves us. Jesus cares about us. That we have all things in Christ. That Christ is not ashamed of us. And when we see that, we have the power to do what Christ has called us to do. See, when we have a lot, giving is not so difficult. I mean, imagine you lose your job, you have no income, you're struggling to pay your rent, struggling to put food on the table, and a close friend calls you up and says, I'm really struggling right now, can you lend me $100? You might say, well, I would love to, I wish that I could, but... I don't have an extra penny. Everything that I have is going towards my rent. But imagine that you inherit a billion dollars. You have a long-lost relative that passes away and gives you a billion dollars. Your friend calls you up and says, I'm really struggling. Could I maybe borrow $100? I promise I'll pay you back. You'd be like, sure. You, yeah, take the $100. And guess what? I'm going to give you $1,000. And don't, don't worry about paying it back. Just don't worry about your rent anymore. See, when we have a lot, giving is not so difficult. And in the Gospel, we see that we have everything that we need in Christ and more. We have everything we need in Christ and more. We see that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. In the Gospel, we see that Jesus is enough for us. That a relationship with Him changes everything. And so, we can die to ourselves. We can lay down our own self-interest because we know that Christ is for us. That Christ has given us all things. See, a decision to follow Jesus is a decision to die. And it's also a decision to live. It's a decision to die to our own self-interest. 
But as we do that, as we die to our own self-interest, we find that we're finding true life in the relationship with God and following His will. Malcolm Muggeridge, British journalist and writer, said this, I can say that I never knew what joy was like until I gave up pursuing my own happiness or cared to live until I chose to die. For these two discoveries, I'm beholden to Jesus. See, for Mark's readers, this was a literal reality. Many scholars believe that Mark was written around the time of Nero's persecution of Christians, uh, where Christians were just being brutalized for their faith. They were being accused of doing terrible things that they didn't do. Some of them actually were being crucified. And so for Mark's readers, this could have been a literal thing. For Mark's readers, this command to take up their cross might have been a literal road to the cross. Yet in their death, they would find life. The same is true for us as we choose to die to ourselves, as we choose to die to our own plans, our own interests, our own need to be right. And we die to those things, we find life in God's will and doing what He's called us to do. In October of 1781, uh, General Cornwallis marched his British troops to Yorktown. And he had just uh, faced the Patriots in another battle um, can, can, they kind of wreaked havoc on his army. And he was hoping to rendezvous, rendezvous with the British Navy on Chesapeake Bay. But American and French troops were there to meet him, and uh, they were just hammering his troops, and uh, they kind of boxed him in so he couldn't get out. So one of the American commanders named Thomas Nelson, who was the governor of Virginia, signer of the Declaration of Independence, he was fighting with these patriots against Cornwallis in Yorktown. And he gathered the men together, and he pointed to a beautiful brick home. He said, that's my home. He says, it's the best one in town. And because of that, Lord Cornwallis almost certainly set up British headquarters inside. And then he gave the incredible command for American artillerymen to open fire on his own home. They did, and as the story goes, the very first cannonball shot through the window and sailed right through the dining room window and landed on the table where Cornwallis' armies were eating. David Bolin, pastor, writes this about the incident. It's one thing for a man to talk about freedom. It's quite another to destroy his own home to help make that freedom a reality. Nelson understood, however, that to hold on to his current life would mean forfeiting the life he was so desperately seeking. A life of true freedom would cost him the stuff of his present life. It was a small price to pay. On October 19th, as the British troops surrendered, the Redcoat Band played the song, The World Turned Upside Down. The song was apt. The world's greatest superpower had just been defeated by an army that couldn't afford to put shoes on his soldiers' feet. But he writes, But how can you thwart an army willing to sacrifice everything they currently have for something infinitely better waiting on the other side? How can you thwart an army willing to sacrifice everything they currently have for something infinitely better waiting on the other side? That's what Jesus calls us to do. To lay down our rights. To lay down our own self-interests. To follow the will of God. Now that might take us to a literal death. Who knows? It might just take us to being ostracized by our family or co-workers because of our faith. 
Who knows where that's going to take us? We're not to seek out suffering, but we're willing to do anything for the cause of Christ. We're willing to follow Christ at all costs. And as we do that, as we make that decision to die to ourselves, we find true life. We find true joy in doing the will of God. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your love for us. We thank You that You sent Your Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. And we thank You, Jesus, that You didn't seek Your own interests. We know that if You did, You never would have went to the cross. But You sought the interests of the Father. And You sought our own interests. That You loved us so much that You were willing to pay the ultimate price for us. God, I pray that we would return to an awareness of the Gospel. That we would see You glorified. The One who died. Who, the One who rose again and ascended to the Father. And then as we see You, we would have the strength and the power to lay down our own lives for You. That we would follow You at all costs. And that as we do so, we would find true joy and true happiness in doing Your will. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.